Well, this is Sunday of the month that I like, because our kids stay here the whole time. I like that. So they'll be with us, so if you don't like background noise, you can move to the front. There's plenty of seats available um, for turn them up. I don't know. Do what you got to do. Um, but if you have a Bible this morning, I'll invite you to take it out to Galatians uh, chapter 2 this morning. And again, the Bible's right in front of you if you need one. I think it's good to look at God's Word yourself. Uh, last week, if you were here, really, it was our vision and prayer Sunday, and we just took some time to, to think and to talk about where the Lord might be leading State Street Church and its people. And so thank you who were uh, here, who were willing to stay for the annual meeting as well and just be part of that. And um, We have some extra reports. If you weren't able to get one of those, let me know. We can get one to you. But um, it gives a financial update as well. But thank you for those who were uh, able to stay for that. And if you remember at all about last week, at least during our time here, we gathered... Um, we didn't launch some capital campaign project. We didn't say, here's our new goal and here's the exact nuts and bolts of what we want to see God accomplish. Um, but really, last week was meant to ask us individually, I think, to evaluate the place of our own lives through the words of Paul in Second Corinthians. Maybe let me just jog your memory in case you perhaps don't remember what last week we talked about. Right, but it really was Paul's reminder to the church in Corinth that, that they are Christ, and, and by nature we are Christ's ambassadors. Right, that we're his representatives, and, and as his representatives, we represent the King of Heaven. And I had the opportunity yesterday to talk at a men's breakfast at Great Bay Calvary, and we kind of teased this thought out just a little bit more, how an ambassador is sent to a foreign land with confidence from the king. Meaning the ambassador has built up some sort of level of trust, if not cognitive understanding, of how the king thinks, what the rules and laws are, what the expectations are of the king. Right? There, there's no one who would say, hey, look, go represent me. Take your best guess at how I might answer a question. Um, just do what you want, actually. No king would send an ambassador to a foreign land. We don't send, the U.S. does not send ambassadors to a foreign land and say, hey, our laws mean nothing, our constitution means nothing to you, but go represent us. Have a great time. Here's a company credit card. But that would be foolish. An ambassador is meant to represent the king and the kingdom and actually to represent with, with very tight accuracy. And we were reminded last week that if we claim Christ, we're meant to represent him with, with tight accuracy. And how I think we maybe perhaps begin to look at God's word as kind of a choose your own adventure. I don't like what that says. I'm going to take out the book of James. We don't really know who wrote it anyway, so just get rid of that thing altogether. Right? And we've become to try to find our comfort level of scripture. The problem is to be a Christian affords you no such luxury. Because if God is all-powerful in his word and he is truthful, and we sang about him earlier, right? He is holy, he is above all these things, and his word carries weight. And then Paul, right, reminds us in his letter to Timothy that all scripture is, is breathed out by God. Now we have some, some, some paradox of trouble, don't we? God is all-powerful, that, we like that. God creates everything. We like that. God is ruling and reigning. We like that because when life is chaotic, there's some sort of comfort that we get out of that. But when God gets personal with me, we don't appreciate that. 
When God says for me not to exasperate my children, it seems like God's getting a little bit too involved in my personal life, right? To not nudge my kids to kind of just torque them up a little bit and just, you know, to be an annoying parent because it can happen. If I choose not to heed those words of Scripture, I'm essentially saying, God, I, I heard you, I just know better than you right now. And therefore, if I choose that, I'm not being a very good ambassador. We must continue to be a people who are rooted in the Scriptures as our authority and our hope and our conviction. And then we talk about how out of that stirs out that that love must be a primary characteristic that defines us as God's people. It has to be. Again, we don't get the option for it not to be. So it doesn't matter if you're from New England. It doesn't matter if you're prideful. It doesn't matter if you're introvert or extrovert. These things are not um, subjected to your preferences or my preferences. Love must reign in our lives and be set, I think, on a pedestal of his example to people around us. It has to be a primary characteristic. Resentment, unwilling to forgive, hatred are not to be characteristics of God's people. And guess what? It's, it seems to be growing, growing, I think, an opportunity to do the exact opposite. You can rant and rave all you want on social media with limited repercussions. Right? You, you can, I won't say it that way, you can object to something, right, um, in, a, in, a, in a kind of callous way or object to somebody else in a callous way on social media with, with low repercussion. And then that begins, to, like it or not, be what you're known for. But we live in a temporal culture with temporal re- repercussions, right? Just put like six more posts in front of that with Bible verses, or sorry, following that, and that post gets dropped to the bottom, no one ever sees it again. But you feel better because you got it out there. The problem is someone is going to remember that. And that primary characteristic that you're defined by is no longer love, but it's going to be something else. Right? If we're honest, some people are likable. They appreciate love shown to them. They may even show love back. But, but what about everybody else? Like, what about everybody else? What do we do with that? What about those that are, are hard to love, that don't seem to appreciate it, that don't even really accept it? What do we do with that? Does our negative response to someone toward us who seems to be negative, kind of does that elevate our need to love them or does that free us from the obligation to love them? All right, ultimately, I want to ask the question, how do we as followers and disciples of Jesus Christ live a life with the hope of having love be the primary characteristic that marks that? That's what we talked about last week. Today is really, I think, an outpouring of that. If we can at least mentally agree that that love should be a primary characteristic for us, if we can at least agree on that, I'm not saying it is for you right now. I'm not saying it is always for me in every moment of my life. But if we can agree that that's what we're to be getting after, then I think we can begin to walk out in just helpful steps. And I think Galatians 2 is a helpful step in that. So if you have a Bible this morning, Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10 is what we'll look at. This is God's word. 
says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And for those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel of the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. God, as we look into Paul's writing here to the Galatians, would you be present? Would you uh, stir your words to the work of your spirit deep within us? And would you accomplish exactly what you want to accomplish today in our individual lives? That we might come to uh, grow in our maturity in Christ, our love for you, and our hope found in the gospel. Amen. Okay. This is a chance to answer something. Who wrote this letter? Who wrote this? Paul. I just said it when I prayed, right? That Paul wrote this. It wasn't your question, right? Yeah, Paul. Who is he writing to? The Galatian, just general population? The church, God's people. God's people in Galatia. Does Paul know them? Or are they just random people he's writing a a pen pal letter to? He planted the church, so he does indeed know them. Right? He preached the gospel here. Right? And Paul preached the gospel in a winsome way, and through the grace and work of the Holy Spirit, people came to trust in the hope of the gospel. So is Paul writing because he just says, hey, you said a magical prayer one day, so you're good. Is that why Paul writes his letter? Yes or no? I'm trying to help you kind of stay along here, folks. No. Why is he writing to them? Why does he write most of his letters? To what? There's trouble. There's trouble going on. There's things happening within the collective group of God's people in certain locations. And Paul, because he cares about them, writes back to these people. He writes to them with concern. Why? Because he wants them to grow. He wants the gospel to be deeply rooted in their lives, and he wants their identity in Christ to be the most important thing they could possibly cling their hands to in possession. Preceding this portion of Scripture, Paul had just gotten done reminding these Galatian believers that there really is only one gospel. And if he or anybody else, even if they claim to be angels, preaches a different gospel than the hope that's found in Christ, they are wrong and no credibility should be given to them. 
So what does that tell you? There seems to be some coming in and preaching a gospel that is different than that that's founded in Christ alone. And so before you get irritated with me, preaching of the message, focus on the gospel, what do you think Paul writes 90% of his time rooted in content? It's the gospel. Like you and I don't graduate from gospel understanding. You and I don't graduate from hearing the word gospel, be reminded to return to the gospel because you're older now or because you're even more mature. See, Paul, I think, can only accurately write back about the gospel because the gospel continues to take root in his life, meaning he's trying to figure out how do I live as Paul, called to share the gospel, how do I live under the gospel? Don't forget, Paul has got a history. Paul's got a history of what? Condoning murder? Trying to wipe out an entire religion? Okay, so you can't get on board with that because you've never tried those things. Paul's got a history of being human. Can, can you at least identify now? Like he was a human, and he is a human, and he struggles with sin, and he struggles with the desires of his heart. He struggles with passions. He struggles with all these things. And he struggles with how do I follow the gospel and trust Christ in this moment here and now. Can you identify now with Paul? I hope so. See, Paul, it seems, he keeps recounting a bit of his own story here to the Galatian believers. And perhaps he's responding to the criticism that the gospel that he is spreading is one from man rather than God. Right? Perhaps that's why he's writing here. But if so, then all he will be doing and saying is an attempt just to make men happy. Right? If he's preaching a gospel that does not come from God, the gospel that Paul would have preached would have been much more palatable. Okay, so gospel is good news. That, that's what it means. And so if I tell you that I've got good news for you, you can't save yourself. Only the blood of a holy sacrificial lamb through the person and work of Jesus Christ could ever save you from your sin and for eternity. That may not sound like good news. If I compared that to, hey, you're great, you're awesome which I believe you are, but you can live however you want to in life. And at the end of it all, don't worry, you're going to go to heaven. If I, if I only ever taught that second message, that might feel like very comfortable good news, comparatively speaking, because the other good news just said that you and I aren't good enough. If Paul were to preach a false gospel, do you think it would have been a little more palatable? If Paul was going to preach a gospel that was really man-made up, why include this whole repentance idea? Why include this whole sin idea? Why not just make it comfortable? See, Paul's writing here, I think, to push back against the idea that the gospel he preaches from man. If it was from man, I think he would have made it much more simple. See, Paul is convicted of the gospel. And he wants the believers in Galatia, I believe he wants you and us, to totally know and understand and fully love the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. Like God wants you to love the gospel. And to do so, Paul begins by giving a recount of the gospel that was preached and also a defense to what he was preaching and to that it was indeed the gospel of Jesus Christ. It 
appear that there was just ongoing discussion of what it actually meant to be saved. Was it trusting in the gospel of Jesus alone? Was it trusting the gospel and adhering to the law? Was it trusting Jesus and being circumcised? And and Paul gets into some of this. See, Paul had continued really to follow the unique call that God had placed on him. As Paul went, right, first missionary journey, second missionary journey later on, he really is just following the unique kind of Pauline cutout, perfect fit for him, calling that God had placed on his life. God was using Paul's background, his gifts, and his abilities in all of this. And he was leading him by the work of the Holy Spirit. This brought Paul to numerous people to declare the gospel. It brought him to the Gentiles, a people outside of God's covenant people, the Jewish people. It brought on him beatings. Paul was lowered out the city by a basket to avoid a crowd wanting to take his life. Paul was shipwrecked. If you read Acts, Paul was stoned enough with rocks that they thought he was dead. And then somehow, by God's just miraculous work, it says the next day he was off traveling. This is what Paul believed and was convinced of his mission and his ministry, that he was willing to go through all of those things because Paul had a unique and important calling on his life. It was to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. But for many, it seemed wrong. The Gentiles were pagan. They were not God's people, and they did not deserve to have any share in the heavenly realm, according to some. But Paul was convicted of the saving power of the gospel. He was led by God, and he went boldly to the Gentile people. It's tempting to look at Paul and to look at his life and to look at his calling and to press him up on this huge pedestal. It's tempting to say that I can never do that. I can never be that. And it's true, you can't. And I can't. You want to know why? Because I'm not Paul. I don't have the unique gifts that Paul had combined with the unique experiences that Paul had combined with the unique background that Paul had. But if we are disciples of Jesus Christ, then we do indeed have the same call to bring the gospel to all people. So we begin kind of looking at where you and I and Paul are all separate. You and I are here, Paul's here. But then what things begin to bridge the gap between us? The first is just what I said, that if we are a disciple of Jesus, then we have the same call to bring the gospel that Paul preached to all people. All people. In the unique place and time we live, God has placed the same call on your life. Professional Christianity has, has strived to teach you that sharing your faith is limited to vocation. It's limited to strengths. It's limited to personality or perhaps even limited to age. We've begun to believe this rhetoric that, that sharing one's faith is left for the professional, vocational people in ministry. If you want someone to know Jesus, invite them to church. 
And when you invite them to church, introduce them to your pastor. Or pay for the missionary to go somewhere else. Or support the 501c3 nonprofit so you can get a tax deduction later on in your taxes. Support them financially so they'll take care of, of the gospel work. The problem is those things are not defined for us and laid out that way in Scripture. To share your faith, to share the gospel, you know what it is? It's to be Christian. To be a Christian is to live a life that shares the gospel. It's not reserved for a certain specific few, but that privilege of, res- of sharing the gospel is reserved for all of God's people. Yes, Paul was unique in his calling to the Gentiles. Right? It was a major expansion of God's people. And frankly, if you do not grow up, grow up in the Jewish faith, you are a recipient of Paul's call to the Gentile people. But being a follower of Jesus and not sharing your faith, those two things cannot go together. You and I don't get the option to say, it's just not my thing. God didn't call me to that. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Those are not luxuries that the gospel affords you and affords me. Let me remind you of the passage we talked about last week at our annual meeting, Mark 16, 15 to 16. It says, and, I, and he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Jesus' words, echoing the words of the Great Commission of Matthew 28. To be a disciple of Jesus is to make disciples. It is to share the gospel. It is not subjected to vocational ministry people. Any child that accepts Christ, the expectation on their lives is to make disciples. A child. And how can we... How can we say that? Because their hearts have been changed by the gospel of Jesus. And they're a new creation. And God will graciously use them. And that does not age out. It continues to be the expectation and the call of all who call Jesus their Savior. I believe this was the expectation Paul was taking seriously. And though there were an objection, some thought the gospel required more than faith alone in Jesus. Paul would not back down from the conviction of Christ alone. He would not back down from his call to preach and share and show Christ. Through this passage, Paul's gospel was affirmed by others. Peter, James, and John, it said. Their encouragement for him was, look, preach the gospel. Teach the gospel to the Gentiles. Don't add to it. Preach Christ Church, we are called to do the same. You and I are called to do the exact same thing. We are called to teach and to show and declare the gospel without adding anything to it. Someone does not have to come to church before they come to Christ. That's not how it works. Tattoos do not prevent someone from knowing Christ. 
a former life of addiction does not stop someone from coming to know Christ. We can make a list of things that we've either consciously or perhaps subconsciously added to these prerequisites, but I believe that we've done it. We've all done it. We've kind of decided that person could just get this part of their life figured out. Man, that would be amazing. And then I can feel comfortable sharing Christ with them. To some extent, who am I? to say that because if we begin to think that day that way then what we've done essentially we said to ourselves i've somehow earned god's good grace i mean if we begin to, to put expectations on people that they can't come to christ before they come to church they can't come to christ before they get their act together they can't come to christ before they kick all these habits in their lives what are we saying that you need to earn your right to come to christ the problem is that's completely counter to the gospel what it also implies is that somehow you earned your right to come to Christ. And I want to see that list. I want to see the list that you can put together that tells me how you earned the right to come to Christ. Because I can't produce such a list in my life. The great reformers reminded us that we are saved by, by Christ alone, by faith alone, by God's grace alone. And the reformers were very Right? Specific, the solas of the Reformation alone. That the grace of God alone is what allows us to be known by our Savior. That we're saved by Christ alone. And that's it. And He graciously uses us after that. See, to Paul, he was not adding anything. He was not willing to add anything to the gospel. He did not want anything to be a stumbling block for the ears to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Church, I desperately want my life, and I desperately want your life just to ooze with gospel. Like kids who are sitting here this morning, right? I want your lives, if you have trusted in Christ, to overflow with the love of Jesus towards other people. But it's not just my desire. That's what God wants for us as well, individually and collectively. Right? Kids are amazing at being honest. They have got tremendous opportunities to step into spaces with the gospel and the love of Christ. They seem to be less fearful than we might have create all these stumbling blocks to us. Like, well, what if the person doesn't like me anymore? What if they unfriend me? They stop following me. And kids, are, they're willing to just take those risks. They don't even process it out that way. They're uninhibited. And pray for our kids. Encourage them. And perhaps even be strengthened by them yourself and encouraged by how God is willing to use them in the process. So I believe we need to be a people who stop seeing the idea of gospel declaration, gospel living, and gospel sharing as something meant for a special few. Again, I'll say that one more time. We need to be a people who stop seeing the idea of gospel declaration, gospel living, and gospel sharing as something meant for a special few. Like That is not in the Bible. And that is not an expectation of the church. 
God has gifted his people for work. God has gifted his people for ministry. And so you have gifts. You have things that make you unique. You have gifts and they are meant to both serve the Lord and to serve his people. You have been born with natural talents and abilities. And if you've come to Christ, you also have what Spirit calls, or the Scripture calls, spiritual gifts. And these gifts are not for your hoarding. They are not simply to make you a paycheck in life and to provide for yourself and for your family. But you and I have been given good gifts. So we have to ask the question, why? Why is it that some can teach but some cannot? Why is it that some can work well with their hands and others should stay away from anything that has a a battery or a cord attached to it? Why is it that some can read a recipe and it all comes out perfect and some make it for something and they fail miserably? Why have you been given these good gifts? Scripture tells you. It's not a mystery. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You have been given gifts when you're in Christ. They're called spiritual gifts for the common good. What is that good? It's the building up of God's people. So at the very least, we are given spiritual gifts to build up the people of God. Your spiritual gifts are not like your Christmas gifts. They are not your birthday gifts. Right? When someone gives you a birthday gift, they typically don't give you a wee gift. Here, I bought you this nice, expensive, right, cordless Makita power drill, Kim. I hope you enjoy it. Man, take it and use it well. I'm going to give you my truck, though, okay? <laughs> Just for safekeeping. That's a gift. That, that's a, it's a wee gift. That's, that's bought for Kim. It'd be ridiculous because we have another drill in the house. You can just use that one, right? right but she wouldn't use it. That's, that's an unthought out, non-gracious, very selfish gift. Scripture says, look, you are not given the manifestation of the Spirit, meaning you're not given spiritual gifts <coughs> for just yourself. We are given spiritual gifts to build up the people of God. The gifts that you and I have are not for our own good, but for the building up, the encouraging, the strengthening, and the care of other believers. Let's, let's assume something about me for just a moment. And I will say this with a grain of salt. That I at least have some loose, low bar ability to teach Scripture. If that's true, if that same is true, that that this is a unique spiritual gift that God has put in me, and all I were to do with that is stand in a mirror and talk back everything that I've written down this morning, is that a good use of that gift? No. It would be ridiculous. It would be ridiculous if I thought the best way to use a gift that I've given Talking to me or right back at myself. Trying to encourage myself to use the gifts that God has given me for his glory back to myself. I'd be stuck in this weird, endless loop cycle. I'm just trying to encourage myself to do something I'm never going to do. 
We are given gifts for the encouraging, strengthening, and the building up first of other believers. I don't know how that sits with you, but that's what the Scripture says. You've been given gifts not to be hoarded for yourself. And I'll even build off that, right? So you've been given the gift of ministration, right? You're able to look at things and make sense of them and, and kind of help them all flow in cognitive thoughts or administrative thoughts that make sense. That is not just for you to have a nice, neat to-do list at home. You've been given that gift for the building up of God's people, for the name of God to go out, for the strengthening of his church. Not so your type A personality can look in your closet and see how well organized it is and feel good about yourself. We must ask ourselves, how are we doing with this? How are we doing at serving, at using our spiritual gifts, our talents, our natural strengths and abilities to serve the Lord and to serve others? Look, we've got to go back to the Scriptures, to the early church, and see that there was a special commonality and unity among those people. Because they were unified in the gospel. And part of what united the early church in Acts was their serving. They're using their gifts. They met in each other's homes. They gathered together. Look, they sold their possessions and gave to them as any had need. If a, if a need arose in the church family, the option wasn't, well, I'll pray for you. The option was, what can we do in order that that need could be met? And that, that people were actually striving to help meet the needs of others and other people were actually willing to express their needs. It seems to me that in Scripture, arrogance and closed-offness is not a luxury that the church gets to have. You're not fooling anybody. You're weak. You have moments where you can't figure it all out. You're not, by weak I mean this, you're not all powerful. You can't solve every situation on your own. You can't just work harder. And I believe the church, God's people, is meant to walk alongside you when those moments come. But we've got to become less prideful. We've got to be willing to be transparent, to be vulnerable. What are we afraid of? The non-perfect picture posted on Instagram with just the right lighting? Like you're not fooling anybody. Do you know how long it takes to get four kids in a row on the first day of school for their stinking picture we do every year in the front steps? <laughs> it's not enjoyable. They don't enjoy it. I'm not sure I enjoy it. I think Kim, of all of us, enjoys it. But you don't know that. You don't see pictures 1 through 49. You see picture number 50. I'm going to start throwing up pictures 1 through 49 so you can see what it's really like. What are we afraid of? Paul did this. He used his unique gift combined with the conviction of the gospel to live for the building up of God's people and the glory of God's name. And he was encouraged to do this. Because I think verse 10, and this is what I think will wrap us all together, 
is an insight to Paul's heart. He says in verse 10 of chapter 2, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And I'll be honest with you, this verse is what really drew my heart to this passage. It's likely that, that this instruction was meant to care for those Christians living in need within Jerusalem, if not Judea. See, Paul's concern is affirmation of the greater principle and genuine declaration of the gospel. It must always be accompanied by the meeting of physical need. There, I don't believe, is a case you can make in the Scriptures that meeting the physical need is separate from the declaration of the gospel and that declaration of the gospel is separate from the meeting of the physical needs. I don't think you can make that case. Paul's concern, again, is that affirmation. And if Paul's not enough for you, look at Jesus. He came to preach. He taught without a doubt. He healed the sick and he cast out demons, didn't he? Like Paul, Paul met physical need, and Christ met real physical need. Remember the man who was blind? He spits in mud, and he puts it on his eyes. That wasn't so Jesus would, would say, hey, everyone stop. I'm going to spit in some mud. That blindness didn't come back for that gentleman. It wasn't some dog and pony trick. It wasn't a bait and switch. It was Jesus caring for a real physical need, yes, alongside the declaration of the gospel. What stuck out to me in the, that whole phrase of verse 10 was this, that Paul used these specific words. He was eager to do it. Paul was eager to continue to meet physical needs of people alongside his preaching. How do I know that? He just spent nine verses telling me about how he's committed to the Jesus Christ gospel. And he all of chapter 1 is about the commitment to Christ and the gospel. So I can't make the case that now he's switching and just caring for physical needs. They seem to be going hand in hand. It's clear that he was convicted of the gospel, that he was using his ability to teach and declare it. But we also see that he was eager to serve alongside and meet tangible needs of the people. Church, look, we are to be using our gifts and our talents to care for those inside the church, to build up the church, to strengthen it. But I believe that we are also to be using those gifts and those talents to care for those outside the church family as well. The declaration of the gospel is to come alongside the use of our gifts of those in need. Consider this, maybe, the implications that if somebody has a gift in car maintenance and they only ever worked on their, on their vehicles, in fact, what if that was just cultural norm? That anybody who could fix a car could only work, would only ever work on their car. What would be the result? The rest of us would be staring at YouTube for hours trying to figure out how to take the lug nuts off our tires. And then we find out there's this thing called a brake pad. What do you do with that? Now there's a rotor. But thankfully, there are people who understand vehicles and they're using their abilities by doing what? They go to work. For the follower of Christ, we're called to take our gifts and abilities and talents and things that we understand, right? For these reasons, in this order, first, we're to use them for God's glory. 
Second, we're to use them for building up of God's people, his body. And third, for the good of others and the walk alongside of the gospel in people's lives. See, each person has value. And each person has gifts and abilities that can be used. You can't sit here and say you've got nothing to offer. Because to do that is to discredit how God has uniquely made you. If you can sit here and say, I've got no gifts... I've got nothing to offer the church or anybody else. Then what you're saying is that God has not uniquely made you and that he has invested nothing in you, which is to defame the name of God. Because you are made in God's image. He has distinctly made you. Uniquely put you together with your wiring, your likes and your dislikes your ability to look at a blueprint and have it make sense or to stare at a computer screen and find the solutions, or perhaps not. But God has gifted you. And Jesus expects the believer, the follower of Christ, to use those gifts. In fact, we ought to be eager to do what is good, it says. So how are you wired? What are the things that come naturally to you? What do you believe are the spiritual gifts that you possess? And I would say that others affirm in you actually as well. All right, look at the slide on the screen for one second. Taken from Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 3, and other passages. These are just different spiritual gifts. So you begin to look at the scriptures and you ask yourself, what are things that just come naturally, that make sense now? And it may not be natural, actually. It may not come naturally to you. That's what makes them spiritual gifts. And God, even, the scripture even says, look, to pray. There are some gifts we need to be praying and asking God would give to us. Giving, leadership, mercy, right? prophecy, teaching, discernment, healing. That's not two lists of tongues. It's tongues and interpretation. Pastor. And I even love the last column celibacy, hospitality, martyrdom, missionaries, voluntary poverty. That makes no sense for most people. That's a spiritual gift. You're willing to say, look, I'm going to live on the margins. I'm going to live with less so I can give more. So I can be used by God to the maximum impact. If God's, man, press it on you, right? What I'm asking you to do is to read the scriptures, to ask God to reveal you how he's gifted you, to ask others who are mature in the faith to affirm that in you. Don't allow yourself to be your own compass here. And then ask God to help you use this. How can you and how can I use these gifts to serve the church? to build up the body of Christ? And how can you and I use our gifts alongside the gospel to communicate the saving love of Jesus? Look, church, we must all be eager to do what is good. It may require that we break out of our rhythms, out of our routines, out of our comfort zone, but we've got to do it. Jesus did not give you a salvation to be kept to yourself. God did not give you natural abilities just so you can provide for yourself and for your family. 
And through the blood of Christ, when you came to him in salvation, you are not given spiritual gifts to make yourself feel good. I believe all those things are given for the purpose of others. At the same time, you may provide for your family. You may establish yourself in the community. There might be other byproducts of having those gifts, but our heart as followers of Jesus, if that's what you claim, should echo the words of Paul that we would be eager to care for those around us, eager to do what is good, to follow the Spirit's leading, eager to do what is good with prayer that the gospel change would take place in people's lives. To me, this just makes sense flowing out of, man, love being a primary factor for the life of the believer. I don't think Jesus calls us to be loving as a high characteristic of our lives so I can talk in the mirror to myself and just love myself more. But I believe he gives that love to then work out into our natural gifts and our spiritual gifts for the gospel to go forward tangibly alongside the medium needs around us. Pray that God would give you wisdom how to do that. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you this morning. And uh, this is going to take your uh, work in our lives to just know how we can best really follow your leading. And so I pray for clarity, for wisdom for us to, to look at our lives, to, to not believe, I believe, what is Satan's lie that thinks we have, says we have no value, we have no gifts, we have no strength. That's a lie. Let us stop comparing ourselves to perhaps Billy Graham and the Apostle Paul, but understand that we are uniquely put together with unique value, and God is calling us to use that uniqueness for kingdom work. Not reserved for a few, but all are called to take part. In your name, amen.